the book of Psalms is my favorite Old Testament book. It's particularly been helpful to me, and I, and, and, and I want to share this with you because it is a great source for you to go to, particularly when you're struggling and you're going through a, a trial in your life. Uh, there are some great Psalms, particularly the one we're going to look at today has been helpful to me, and I hope it will be helpful to you. Uh, one of the hardest times I went through in my life, I, 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 read, I read and prayed fervently through this particular book. When it, when it, a time in our life when I thought I had lost everything, a uh, lifetime of support. I used to be a missionary. I lost my retirement. I lost my honor and my reputation because of slander. We, we, we just thought we were totally destroyed. And frankly, I didn't want to, I didn't, I just wanted to go to heaven. I wanted to die and go to heaven. But uh, uh, Psalm 3 was one of these uh, great sources of hope that I went to for me, and I hope it will help you as well. But notice uh, Psalm 3 begins with an introductory title. And by the way, this is in the original canon of Scripture. These are, the the titles here uh, come from the Holy Spirit. Look what it says. It says it is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So we need to consider this very carefully because it's laying out for you the context of David's words. And so if you go all the way back to 2 Samuel, you can read about this particular incident in uh, David's life. It was not a, not a good time for him. Uh, the story of David's escape is is right there in Holy Scripture for you in 2 Samuel, so I encourage you to read that. But while King David was occupied with the affairs of the Israeli government, his uh, one of his sons, who's named here Absalom, stole the hearts of the people and ended up raising a rebellion against King David. And there, there was a conspiracy against David. In fact... Uh, Absalom didn't want to just take his crown. He wanted to take his life, as in his father's life. And so the revolt was something that, for David, it was very sudden and it was unexpected. Uh, And of course, uh, if you know the story, you know David ends up uh, fleeing out of the capital city of Jerusalem there. He's fleeing for his life and he left with whatever leaders uh, had remained faithful to him. He retreated, he crossed over the Kidron Valley, made his way up over the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem, and went into the wilderness and found some safety there, as he, as he often did when he was trying to get away from King Saul. But the text uh, there in Second Samuel actually tells us that uh, David went away weeping. This was a difficult time in his life. He went barefoot, he, the Bible says his head was covered in sorrow, and along the way, David was loudly and openly cursed by someone named Shimei, who was a who was a Benjaminite who was who was faithful to the former king, King Saul. And here's what the Bible says in Second Samuel 16. Look at this, uh, Shimei. Imagine. Imagine you're already down. You're already in despair. You're going through a hard time. And here's what the Bible says. Shimei says, did I not put that up there? Okay. Uh, Anyway, he's yelling at David as he's fleeing for his life. He says, get out. Get out, you man of blood. You worthless man. 
Yahweh has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. Yahweh has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You've come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Talk about beating a dead horse. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, don't help me up. Just kick me in the ribs while I'm already down. Yeah, that's kind of what he's doing. And so in this situation here, which is described in Psalm 3, we, we have a, a, a hymn of individual lament. It's written to paint a very clear, clear picture for us of what does triumphant faith look like when it's actually tested in the fires of adversity? In other words, when you're going through a hard time in your life, what does real, genuine faith look like? Well, if you want to know, this is a psalm that you need to pay attention to because these are the words of the living God for us. Look at Psalm 3. Here's what it says. O Yahweh, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. The proposition from Psalm 3 is this, my friends, that God wants you to trust Him even during trials. Even during trials, God can be trusted and should be trusted. Let's think about the problem, first of all, that David has here. Uh, you'll see in verse 1, the foes are resisting him. Foes are resisting him, it says in verse 1. So just, just think about David's situation. And maybe you can even apply this to yourself. Maybe you felt similar as David. He's in a minority. He's in a minority. And to be in a minority is itself a test of the nerves. And that's why he's crying out to Yahweh here, and he's saying, how many are my foes? Not just one. Not just Absalom. No, no, no. It, many foes in this situation. That word many is actually repeated three times there in those first two verses, and it's representing for us here a growing opposition against David that is being led by his own son. Talk about getting stabbed in the back. And it, it involved many enemies who were loyal to Absalom. So what began here as a secret rebellion is something that's growing now into a full-out revolt by many of Israel's citizens. The, the very people whom David loved and served are out to get him. And so David feels outnumbered by those foes, and those foes are not happy with him. Many of them want his very life. And so I ask about you, my friend. What about you? What about you? 
perhaps you feel like you too are in the minority. <laughs> I certainly often feel that way in this world. This world is not my friend. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this world is not your friend. You are in the minority. Uh, the fact is, though, a, a lesson that I have learned and need to keep learning is that expectations will destroy your contentment. Uh, sorry, unrealistic expectations will destroy your contentment. If you have unrealistic expectations and you come into a situation thinking, you know, the, you know, whatever, you know, you deserve good health and, you know, everybody's supposed to be for you and you're supposed to be rich and, you know, all these sort of things. If, you're, if this is the way you're thinking and then life doesn't work out that way, you're not going to be content. And so if you're a Christian today, the reality is, my friend, you are in the minority. <laughs> you, that's what you need to believe. New Zealand is not a Christian nation. In fact, what was it, the last census is something like nearly 50% 50 of the country ticked the non-religious box. By far the largest of all of them. So, the non-religious group is certainly the largest, and this world, of course, is no friend of God either. There's no friend of Jesus, and Jesus said we should expect the same. And so don't expect the world to be your friend. We should actually expect hostility. Now please notice something else about David's situation here. Not, not only are there many foes, it says, not only is he in the minority, but notice this particular minority is actually getting smaller and smaller by the minute. It's shrinking, and that's why he says next, many are rising against me. In other words, his situation's getting worse and worse by the minute, and there doesn't seem to be any hope in sight for him. It's a desperate situation. The enemy's pass is not passive, sorry. In fact, they're actually actively on the move to get him. They want him dead. So my friend, perhaps you can identify here with David's problem. That's one of the reasons I, I, I certainly can identify with the Psalms and they've been helpful. I, I can identify in some ways. Now, sure, you may not be facing an imminent military battle. I, I certainly hope you're not. But uh, uh, we, we, we have battles in many different ways, though. right? E even if a military is not against you, you, you have battles. You're probably going to face some this week. You can expect that. The climate in, your, in the company you work in, for example, might be, uh, uh, it might feel like open warfare in your company. Uh, everybody's trying to defeat everybody else and climb the corporate ladder, and, and they're quite happy to step on you and cut your head off to, to get to the top. That's kind of normal in companies. Conditions might be cutthroat. The weapons of your company might be rumors, gossip, slander, might rep misrepresent you. Sadly, sometimes it's violence, bribes, and stealing. So how can any honest person, how can a Christian who tries to follow Jesus survive in the jungle of a, of a, of a world's company? Good question, right? It is cutthroat. So th there's battles. Those of you who are working in companies, you're, you're going to face battles. Uh, again, uh, you may not be facing thousands of soldiers, but as David was, um, but how many enemies does it take in your life for you to feel miserable? 
and, and possibly even lead to the loss of your job, your identity, or whatever it might be. Well, for me, it only takes one. <laughs> I think one's enough. It, and if uh, he or she is determined enough, that's, that's enough, right? And you probably have more than that uh, for, for most of us. In fact, the more prominent uh, you are, probably the more enemies you're going to have and the more vulnerable you're going to be to those enemies. Uh, for some of us, uh, you might feel like your enemy is bureaucracy, <laughs> right? Bureaucracy is a, a very formidable enemy. It's a tough one, particularly if, you, if, if, if anybody works in a government agency. It's, it's going to get tougher and tougher. Or again, maybe for you, maybe, uh, yeah, you, sure, you may not be attacked by soldiers that are actually commanded by your own son. <laughs> But maybe your children hate you. Maybe you've been betrayed by someone in your family. Maybe you felt like you've been stabbed in the back by someone in your own family. That hurts. And for that matter, maybe your own husband may have done it to you. Maybe your own wife may have hurt you deeply. So you thought your spouse was an ally, and you, sometimes we find out our own spouse is our enemy. Those are serious problems to face. So I'm just pointing out some of the battles that, that we all face, or will face. What do we do? But notice for David, yeah, he had a lot of foes. But notice uh, number two here. Foes mock me. Foes mock me. They, they scorn me, as, it, as David says in verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Ouch. So here's David, by the way, uh, quoting his own oppressors. <laughs> Their arrogance against Israel's king here is implied that, that God had abandoned David. You ever had someone tell you that? You ever had an unbeliever say, ha, where's your God? It appears he's abandoned you. You're all alone. That hurts. It, it, it hurts. The words attack the very honor of God Himself because what are they doing? They're claiming that there's, there is no salvation in God. And so my friends, beware of your enemy's attacks. Satan, remember one of our enemies is Satan? What does he like to do? Just, just read the beginning of your Bible. His tactics haven't changed. He, he likes to attack God's goodness and he... He likes to use the people of this world to attack God's own people. Right? What did he do to Adam and Eve? You know, uh, did God really say? He likes to plant that seed of doubt. And, you know, God doesn't have your best interest at heart. And he'll use people of this world to do that, just, just like what's happening here. And so if you listen to God's enemies too much, you're probably going to end up believing them. So don't do that. Don't do that. Now there's a, new, a, a very unique feature here in your Bible. First time it shows up, by the way, in Psalms. It's um, right at the end of verse 2. You'll notice there's the word selah. There's some confusion on that word. Let me just talk about that word for a moment. It's a cool little word. Because selah is a musical term that apparently indicated that 
uh, here in the music of the Psalter that there was supposed to be either, it was something like a pause or a crescendo or maybe even an interlude that was inviting the readers to stop and consider carefully the, the greatness and the magnitude here of what was actually said. So, my friends, have you done that? I haven't given you the chance yet. It's important as you read God's Word, sometimes you just need to meditate upon it, think about it, muse upon it. God's people can have serious problems, and our problems may appear to be insurmountable, like like it's bigger than Mount Everest, and I'll never get up there. So praise God, my friends, there is hope. There is hope here. Now much happens in this psalm here in the space between the stanzas. The second stanza is a quiet expression of David's confidence in God. So so he starts off often as giving you the problem. But the answer is that he has turned his attention away from the enemies. He's stopped looking at the enemies, the battles of life, and change our thoughts. See, when you have a noisy soul, the problem is you're really good at meditating. But your meditation's on the wrong thoughts. The wrong content. And so you have to change the content of your meditation in order to not have a noisy soul. And that's exactly what David does here. And so when a believer gazes too long at the enemies, the force becomes great. It seems to actually grow in size until you're overwhelmed. But when when you turn your thoughts to God and you look to Jesus, God is actually seen to be great, and those enemies actually shrink. And they can be actually become manageable proportions for you. And So let's look at God together here and, and see what David says, because this is the solution to your problem. So here's the solution. Number one, we see that Yahweh is my shield Yahweh is my shield, verse 3 says. Notice the word, but. Showing this contrast right there at the beginning of verse 3. But the contrast from my problem is I must look to Yahweh. I must think of Yahweh and meditate upon Him. Now, David's using a familiar language for him, which is the battlefield. And so David asserted here that God was his impenetrable defense. So when David went into battle, he was he was a man of blood, as he was accused of, right? He was a great warrior. And when David went into battle, of course he had a sword, but he also had a shield. And, and David would have understood just how important that shield is to defend himself against deadly arrows and and sharp spears and deadly swords. A, a shield could could deflect and defend himself and keep himself alive from those weapons. And so David exclaims here that that shield is what God was to him. God is the impenetrable defense. He is the invincible protection in the midst of whatever your danger is. And so I ask you, my friend, are you trusting God to be your shield? Are you trusting God to be your protection? Or when you find yourself in a difficult time of your life, are you do, do, do you go into planning mode? 
I'm going to strategically plan myself out of my difficulties, right? Yeah, I know. Some of you are just like me. <laughs> yep, some of you do that. Ooh, strategically move myself so I can protect myself, right? Yeah, we, that's what we tend to do. No, that's not the solution. You must trust God to be your protection. Number two. Number two, look at this. The solution is that Yahweh is my glory. Yahweh is my glory. David says so right there in verse 3. Not only is he a shield about me, but he says he is my glory. The idea there, my glory, that, that phrase my glory, just means that David trusted God to restore his crumbling life and, and to grant deliverance right here in the midst of a very humbling experience. Sometimes we tend to find our identity in our jobs. You ever done that? You ever found your your whole identity in your job? And then your job crumbles. You, you're made redundant or you're fired or whatever might happen, right? You, you might lose your health and then your whole identity just crumbles around you because the identity, your identity was in that job. Well, David's feeling that way. As king of Israel, it, it feels like the whole crown and his authority and, it, and even maybe his own life is, is going away from him. But he says, Yahweh is my glory. I don't need to be king of Israel to have glory, because God is my glory. That's the right response. And number three, Yahweh is my lifter. See, David walks out of Jerusalem, Second Samuel says. He walks away with his head down. He is in despair, but his head is hanging low, figuratively and literally, but he could confidently claim here that, that God is going to lift up my head. I am going to have courage. I'm going to have peace that only God could provide. He's going to lift up my head. This is the right solution. It gets even better because he goes on and he says, that Yahweh is my Savior in verse 4. So he, what does he do? He's, he says, I cried aloud to Yahweh, and He answered me from His holy hill. So this king here is looking to the greater king, and he calls upon the king of kings. And so with a resolute faith, David commits himself to Yahweh. And that's why he says, He answered me from His holy hill. Let me remind you what the holy hill is, as we talked about last time. The, the, the Lord's holy here, hill here refers to the, the place of David's sanctuary right there at Mount Zion, right in the city of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount in Jerusalem is where David had brought the Ark of the Covenant. And, and it, that was the place that represented the very presence of God. Now, ultimately, this refers to the heavenly throne room where God Himself sits enthroned. He's presiding over all of your troubles and the troubles of this world. And in, in other words, what I'm saying is David knew that God heard him and answered his plea for help from the very throne room of heaven. 
24-7. He hears your cries. And so I ask you, my friends, are you trusting God to hear and answer your prayers? He can hear. He does hear. Well, then next, let's look at the results. So have we seen the problem? The solution is Yahweh. What's the result? When, when faced with trials on every side, can you go to sleep at night? Can you? Well, David did. Even though it's such a short moment, this revolt takes place, the rebellion's happening, his son is out to kill him and get the throne, David is still able to go to sleep. (laughs) You say, how can someone in a situation like this go to sleep? Well, look what he believes about God. Because in verse 5, David says that Yahweh sustains me. Yahweh sustains me. And so in verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustained me. Yahweh sustained me. So, here's, here's someone who's committed his very soul and his whole situation to God. And as a result of that, David is at peace. How else can you go to sleep when everything seems to be against you? David could sleep because he knew God was always awake. God doesn't go to sleep. Nothing takes God by surprise. And so he's trusting God not only to be a shield, but more than that. And so he's able to go to sleep because God is watching for him. So I ask you, my friends, are you trusting God to sustain you? And number two, we see here that Yahweh secures me. Yahweh secures me, in verse 6. David says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Doesn't matter how big the numbers are, how much outnumbered, doesn't matter if I'm surrounded by the enemy. Yahweh secures me. Security is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Have you ever felt insecure? You ever felt violated when someone robbed your house? You ever been robbed? It doesn't make you feel comfortable, right? It's a little eerie that first night you go to sleep. It's, it's, it happened to me when I was a child. Come in the house and find all your stuff scattered around and people steal your stuff. It makes you feel uncomfortable. It doesn't make you feel secure. And you go to sleep at night wondering, hmm, is it going to happen again? Not a good feeling. So security is a wonderful thing. But how do, you, how do you feel secure when you're surrounded by a great multitude that are revolting against God? The answer is, my friend, that God must be your all-sufficient protector. So are you trusting God to secure you? If you are, then you're going to be able to pray like David. And this is exactly what David does. David prays. It shows his trust in Yahweh. So look at his prayer really quickly here. The first thing he prays is he tells God to arise. Arise, he says. Arise, O Yahweh. So God is figuratively represented here as asleep. The idea is it's symbolizing an apparent indifference to his situation. 
And sometimes we might feel like God is sleeping. You ever felt that way? Or you might feel like God is absent in your life and you're, you're, maybe you're praying, why God? Why me? Why now? In reality, by the way, God is actively involved in all of His creation, and the Bible says that God never sleeps. And you want to know where that's found? By the way, God doesn't need to sleep. God doesn't need anything. Because it says, look at this, Psalm 121, verse 1, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He doesn't need to slumber, he doesn't need to sleep, and he never will. He's on guard, he's watching for you. And so David's heart cry was was really a battle cry. It was an appeal to God. God, I need help. Come, please, rally to my defense. Defeat my enemies. So are you trusting God by praying to Him? It shows great trust when you do that. The second part of his prayer is David says, Save me! Save me! Right there in verse 7. And what interesting words in verse 7. Because he says, Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. (laughs) What interesting words here from the Holy Spirit. Because those words, cheek and teeth, are representing his enemy as someone that is fierce, who is attacking, who is who is uh, kind of like a wild beast coming after you to, to eat you and devour you. And the idea of striking their cheek in, in the context here means showing some violence and insult. Yeah. So it's interesting that David seems to be comparing his his enemies here to wild animals who are out to get him. And what does he do? He calls upon God to break their teeth. <laughs> yeah, kind of kind of hard for the wild animal to uh to chew on you when they don't have any teeth, right? You know, <laughs> that's the idea. And so his call can be understood more as a cry, if you will, for freedom than for vengeance on the enemy. He's not asking God to kill his enemies. That's vastly different, by the way. But what David wants is he wants to be delivered from death. And he wants to be saved from physical death in particular. Now some people ask, hmm, that's interesting. Is, Is it right for me to pray this way? Really? Is it right for me to pray this way? Good question. And I think a lot of it depends on your motivation, by the way. What's your motivation behind your prayer? For David, he's motivated by righteous indignation. He has a zealous passion for God's glory. And of course, that would be the right motivation. But often, because our hearts are deceptive and wicked, our our motivations become quite selfish, arrogant. Of course, that's never the right motivation behind a prayer. And the third thing here that David prays for is, he says, bless us. Now notice it's plural. Bless us. He's talking about his whole nation. So he's taking his eyes off not just uh, off himself here, and he's, he's making it a bigger picture, which it should be. In verse 8, when he says, salvation belongs to Yahweh, your blessing be on your people. 
the people of Israel in this situation. So with a very confident trust in God here, David is able to confess these great words. And then he summoned God's blessing here upon all these people who put trust in him. Now please notice this interesting request here for deliverance was not just for himself. That's important. But what David wants is the greater good of his nation. He's he's a selfless king. And as Israel's leader, God's rescue of him in this very dark hour would result in divine blessing upon all the people. David can see the greater picture here. He has great concern for all the people. What is his son going to do? Is this really going to serve God's purposes? Is this going to glorify God? And so that's why he prays that God would bless all the people. Let me give you a few implications from the text today. Just just think with me. Number one is, uh, being a Christian does not protect you from pain. Being a Christian does not protect you from pain. Now, you can experience pain in all sorts of ways. It might be emotional. It might be physical. It might be spiritual pain or whatever, okay? Um it doesn't always have to come to you in, in, in this particular way. We all experience pain because we live in a fallen world. It's part of the curse. The, the good news is, my friend, read Revelation. You come to the end of the book of Revelation. One of the things that's going to be removed is death, pain, sorrowing, gone. But until then, you're going to have to live with that. You need to expect it. Remember, unrealistic expectations will destroy your contentment. You need to expect the pain, even if you're a Christian. Another thing to think about as an implication is often you feel wrong even when you're not. And especially when many foes are coming against you and, and the foes are rising and, and your, your, your little world just seems to be shrinking and you're becoming claustrophobic and uh, and even former friends are yelling at you and saying, you worthless man. That's hard. And so when you look at yourself, you may not see much God would want to save. You might actually see yourself as as uh, as you think you are. And as a result, your inward uncertainty becomes as destructive as the outward attacks from your enemy. Sometimes we are our worst enemy. So beware of being persuaded by the enemy's lies. Sometimes it's very destructive. Uh, just like for David, one, one of the enemies, or, or many of them, are saying, hey, David, as it just says right here, God will not deliver you. God doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's not going to deliver you. My friend, that statement is a lie. It needs to be recognized as a lie, and you defeat lies with truth. God is a deliverer. He is love, and He is good. A third implication is find your identity in God. (laughs) Don't find it in your job. Don't don't find it in your children. I mean, imagine if David, if he tried to seek his identity in his children. Whoa, what a disaster. His own child's trying to kill him. He's lost the kingship. Well, I can't find my identity there. What, what am I going to do now? And so we need to tap into the Psalms. There, there's a vision of 
Human honor and dignity proceeds from God, not in what we do. You see the difference? Don't find your identity in what you do. Don't find it in people of this earth. If your identity and honor come from what you do or from what what people say about you, you're standing on the wrong foundation. And it's going to crumble. And it's going to hurt big time. I've been there. It's It's not good. Because humans fail. Public opinion is fickle. And only God provides what you need anyway. And He's the one who gives you real identity. A fourth implication is this. You can rely upon past experience to provide the foundation for your present. That's what David does. Rely upon past experience. Has God worked in your life at some point in the past? Of course He has. But what does Scripture often remind us? Remember. Because what's our problem? We forget. We forget. <laughs> and so often, in the, right in the middle of life's battle, it's very difficult for us to remember how God has earlier acted to save us. The present seems to be all-consuming. And the danger might seem to be too real in our lives. And, and that's why we need other means of remembering who God is. If you're tempted to forget God who He is, what He's doing, and how God has benefited you, then you need to go to Scripture. Okay? That's that's one of the means of grace God's given to you. And so, when I was tempted in parts of my life to do that, I go to Psalms, and I pray through the Psalms, and God has encouraged me many times. Scripture is a key testimony to a faithful God, one who is good, and who's always great. And so when you're in pain, uh, another means of God's grace in your life is your local church. And the the universal church might be helpful as well, but the church should be speaking words of hope into your life, speaking words of grace into your life, words of deliverance. You ought to be hearing the works of God coming out of the lips of God's people, and you ought to be hearing it often. Their testimony ought to be speaking great words of hope to you. That is the power of community. Because Ecclesiastes says that that a, a rope with many strands is powerful, but you take it down to one little string, it's weak. You need to entwine yourself like a rope. Surround yourself with God's people so they can speak into your life. Because community is powerful. The power of life together will be helpful to you. So how about you, my friends? How are you responding in time of trial? In the midst of adversity, the believer should trust God, knowing that deliverance comes from Him. And and even when a Christian suffers, and of course David was a sinner, we're sinners, and and so uh, when we suffer because of wrong choices in the past, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. And so during life storms, God speaks peace to troubled hearts. And God is able to calm those storms. And so whatever the trial you have faced, are facing, or will face, the godly should lean on the Lord, knowing that that God is always good, 
and he's always great, and he's never going to change from that. However, if, if you are trying to live life in your own strength, you're going to be easily defeated. You're going to believe the enemy's lies. You're going, to, you're going to believe that you are truly surrounded by great foes and your world is shrinking and there is no hope. And my friend, you, you must entrust yourself to God. And if you do, He's going to empower you to stand strong in those troubles. He's going to deliver you to safety. Yeah, your physical life is going to end one day. But God has still delivered His people to safety. If you're a Christian, you're going to be delivered to heaven, the ultimate place of safety, where nothing will ever hurt you again. So my friends, in every trial, you don't need to fear. Instead, we need to trust Yahweh. After all, He is worthy of our trust. So the question is, are you trusting in Him? God enable us to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a good God and a great God who is worthy of our trust. You are worthy of all of our worship. You are a God who is active, alive, working, even during our trials. May we believe that. Protect us from unrealistic expectations. May we believe you to be as you really are. May we not find our identity in what we do or in family and friends or or in in any other people. Protect us from false identities. May we find our identity in you. So even when the world around us crumbles, our identity does not. So may we love you. May we trust you. May we follow you passionately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.